Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. I just want to read this this passage that uh, that we we've already sung about today. It's just a just a great passage that that connects some pieces for us today as we as we get into the story of Pentecost from Ezekiel chapter thirty seven. You don't have to turn there if you just want to listen to it. But but this is one of these great old passages in the in the Old Testament that that speaks so much to speaks to me, speaks to us in our in our in our own faith. And so Ezekiel thirty seven, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord." And so I prophesied as I was commanded, and I prophesied, and there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews upon them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live." And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. You know, you hear that story in, from Ezekiel, and what a sight that must have been. Uh, you know, I mean, we in our culture, we're, we're, we're drawn towards zombie movies and the idea of the, of the dead coming back to life, that sort of thing. But, but this sight for Ezekiel must have been just an astonishing thing for him to be part of, to sit there and to, to be in this valley where, where there was nothing but death and decay and, and destruction. But with the power of God, all that was dead came back to life. It's a, it's a parable. It's a picture of, of us today. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a connection between the word for wind or the word for breath and the Spirit of God. So when we open our Bibles up to Acts chapter 2 to read about Pentecost, we, we read about the wind coming upon this infant church, or at least the sound of the wind. And with that sound came the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And suddenly this church that, that was somewhat fearful, somewhat timid, somewhat contained, Within the upper room, suddenly this church found itself very much alive. And I am convinced of this, that the same Holy Spirit that moved in Acts chapter 2 and brought life to that church is the same Holy Spirit that is working in and through us today. Do you believe that? If we believe that, then how do we live out our lives in such a way that it shows that we believe that? The same Holy Spirit is as much the power source of the church today as it was on that day in Jerusalem when the Spirit came at Pentecost. Jesus ascended into heaven. He told the disciples that they needed to wait for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. They waited for 10 days. And now, during the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit finally made his, his appearance. Now, now, it's not that the Holy Spirit was absent 
prior to Acts chapter 2, but, but in Acts chapter 2, God shows us the Holy Spirit in a new way. He relates to us and connects to us in a new way through the Holy Spirit. Prior to Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon individuals and gifted them for purpose and gifted them for service, but it wasn't a, wasn't a permanent arrangement, which is why David was able to pray, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because the Holy Spirit related to people differently. But in Acts chapter 2, at the arrival of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit made his appearance in a big new way. And so as we, as we dig in this morning, I would ask you figuratively, literally, if you like, to just stick your finger in the air and see if you can feel the breeze. I firmly believe this, that God is still working and moving through the Holy Spirit today. So let's turn our attention then to Acts chapter 2, to the story of Pentecost, and let us see how God confirms his plan through this incredible miracle recorded for us by Dr. Luke. If you've got your place in the Bible to Acts chapter 2, I would invite you to stand with me as we read these words together from Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, aren't, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that, that we hear each of us in our own native tongue? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying, they are filled with new wine. God, I want to thank you for the arrival, the advent of the Holy Spirit, which has changed, it's changed how we function, how we live, what our faith looks like, how it manifests. God, help us to understand today that the same Holy Spirit that moves and acts and lives in us is the very same Holy Spirit that empowered this first church. God, I firmly believe today, and your word confirms it, that it is the same power source that supplies your church today with the energy and the wherewithal to do her job. We ask that as we consider the words today from Acts chapter 2, that you might speak to our hearts. And as we have sung already today, Send revival to us. Send us a new dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God. Move in our midst. And Lord, just as you did in Acts chapter 1 and 2, we ask and pray that you might do it again in our life, in our generation as well. That we might see darkness push back and the light of the gospel shine brightly from our lives, our families, our churches. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. You know, as we consider Acts chapter 2, one of the things I think that you have to come to grips with is, is this simple fact. Don't ever doubt God's timing. You know, we, we struggle with this because we, we wonder how God's timing works. I, I kind of laughed this morning. One of our computers got stuck in update mode in the back, and, and it was uh, a computer that kind of looks at does our security cameras and everything. And, and uh, I sat down to, to try to get it working, and, and the computer had the little spinning thing on it, and it said, just a moment. And I thought to myself that, that this really, truly helps me understand the Scripture that says, for the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Exactly how long is a moment in Windows world? I don't really know, but I know that I walked away and came back and the moment had passed and everything had updated like it was supposed to. God's timing is certainly one that is difficult for us to comprehend. When we look at Acts chapter 2, this is one of these passages, understand this, that we could sit down and we could chew on this one for a while. The, the story of Pentecost is not one that, that, that can, can be exhausted in one 30 to 45 minute sermon here. It's something we could talk about for quite a while. You don't even get past the first two phrases and you've already got some things that we need to talk about. We're told that the, the day of, of Pentecost had arrived, that this is the day of, of Pentecost. Now, we hear that, we hear that as Baptists, and we, we hear Pentecost, and we think Pentecostals, and I was joking with the worship team this morning, telling them to have a good time with that first song, that, 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 you know, be as charismatic as they want to. I said, just get shy of speaking in tongues. I mean, go ahead and have fun with it, right? We hear Pentecost. We hear that, and we think, well, that's a Pentecostal church. That's the one where, where they're, you know, they're a little more active than we are as Baptists, right? Pentecostals are the ones who can actually clap offbeat and do it together, right? Baptists, we struggle with just ones and threes. Pentecostals, got twos and fours all day long, right? So, so we hear that and, and we sort of push back on the idea of Pentecost because we think Pentecostal, we think those, those denominations that, that maybe doctrinally don't line up with us completely like they should. But understand this, that, that Pentecost is something that's celebrated in more liturgical churches, Baptists. We don't really have a Pentecost festival per se. Biblically, Pentecost was known as the Feast of Weeks. Described for us in Leviticus chapter 23, the Feast of Weeks was the second of three solemn feasts that Jewish people were required to celebrate. And in fact, they were eventually required to travel to Jerusalem in order to attend the Feast of Weeks. The important feast gets its name from the fact that it starts seven full weeks, exactly 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. And since it takes place 50 days after the previous feast, this feast is also known as Pentecost, which means 50. Now, you, you got to think that if, if we were part of a, a, a religious order that required a pilgrimage of some sort, that one of the things that would determine our ability to participate in those sort of pilgrimages would be, would be weather, right? I mean, if, if, if we as Southern Baptists said we're going to have our Southern Baptist Convention in January in Green Bay, I'm probably going to skip out on that one. Uh, Green Bay in January. I know they play football, but that's about the only thing you can do in Green Bay in January, and that can't be fun. Weather has something to do with how well something is, is attended. And so Pentecost almost always happened in the first part of June, 
Which means that in spite of it being one of the lesser-known feasts of the, of the Jewish faith, that Pentecost was actually one of the most celebrated because it was the easiest time of year for people to travel and be able to participate. And so Pentecost was, was hopping at, in Jerusalem. It was, a, it was a crowded bunch of, uh, uh, it was a crowded town during Pentecost. Jerusalem would have been crawling with pilgrims who had come from all over to the city for the celebration. Some historians have estimated that Pentecost would attract as many as 200,000 pilgrims from around the Mediterranean. You imagine what 200,000 extra people in the middle of Jerusalem would be like in that day. And, I mean, the stress on the infrastructure, the traffic jams, I mean, uh, you know, how, how hard would it be to get an Uber ride in Jerusalem in, in that day? So Pentecost, as we celebrate it in the book of Acts, it did not happen on a regular weekend. It, it happened when there were Jews from all over the Mediterranean gathered in the city, which if you're about to launch a movement and you want to have your message be planted in as many ears as possible to disperse that movement in as wide a geographic place as possible. Seems like a pretty good time, right? Seems like a pretty good time to, 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 to let this happen. And so here you, you have this, this miracle take place where the gospel is literally set in the ears of thousands of people who were going to be in Jerusalem for this time, and then they're going to be sent back to their, their hometowns and their home countries. And so right away in the book of Acts, we see the gospel beginning to, to break out of Jerusalem. It begins to break out of that upper room. You can't contain the good news of God. It has to be spread. It has to go. It has to reach the ends of the earth. It's just like us. If we have good news that we can't wait to share, I mean, right? We have something, something significant happens to you. You, got a, you get a job promotion. You're picking up the phone and you're calling somebody. You're telling somebody, you won't believe what's happened to me. You get an inheritance. You can't wait to tell somebody. You've got good news that there is a God in heaven who loves you and has saved you and has rescued you and redeemed you. How in the world can you keep that to yourself? You can't. You can't. And in God's perfect timing, he allows this, this miracle to transpire when as many ears were available to hear is absolutely possible. So if you don't like God's timing, if you don't like God's timing, don't doubt it. You may not like it, but certainly don't doubt it. A second thing that we, we take away from this is, is don't ever doubt God's plan. I think we can all agree that God's plan for Pentecost, man, it's, it was spectacular. I mean, what we read about is stunning. The disciples, of course, knew that the Holy Spirit was coming, but, but Jesus didn't tell them how. He said, wait, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. You know, is there a box coming that we open and boom, it jumps out? I mean, how, how does this work? How, how does the Holy Spirit arrive in God's plan? These disciples had to wait, had to wait on the Lord. They had to trust God's plan. They had to wait to see what happened. Imagine, imagine if you will, just being in that room. 120 folks-ish. Room probably smaller than this. I mean, 
architecture was of such that you didn't have just gigantic meeting spaces. So you have 120 people. It wasn't very COVID-friendly, was it? No social distancing in the time of Pentecost. But that room was, was filled with anticipation and expectancy. 120 folks, we don't know what they're all doing at exactly the same time, but they're all together in one place. I, I suspect they're praying. Perhaps Peter and John were chatting about what they believe their next actions should be. Maybe there were some guys huddled up with Matthias, helping him to understand what his role looked like as, as a new disciple. We don't know what it looked like. But as they were praying and thinking and reflecting, a sound began to fill the place. Probably started out low, perhaps so low that no one noticed. But eventually the place was, was filled with the sound of a mighty wind from heaven. Heaven's wind, the great wind that brought life to Ezekiel's valley, was now bringing power to this small band of believers gathered there in that room in Jerusalem. All part of God's plan. All part of how God wanted it done. That same breath that brought life to Ezekiel's valley, that same wind was represented in that room that, that day as the Holy Spirit descended. That day, those disciples were granted the gift of the Holy Spirit, and I suspect that that event was burned in their memories from that point forward. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't forget something like that, right? I mean, you couldn't forget that experience. You couldn't forget. I, I mean, I suspect that there were days 10 years down the road and 20 years down the road where they said, you remember that day? This sounded like a hurricane. They didn't know what a hurricane was. It sounded like a storm rolling through that room. And that day we were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't miss a key part of God's plan here. He gave the disciples instructions to wait. But you know, that's one of the hardest things for us to do as Christians is wait. Man, waiting. When the Lord says, wait, you pray and you pray and you pray, and, and God doesn't say no, he just says, not yet. And he says, you need to wait. That's hard to do. Especially when we consider how many times the Bible tells us to wait upon the Lord. God says, wait. We say, God, hurry up. Ten days. Lord, you could have done this sooner. Jesus says, no, you need to wait. It's part of my plan. You need to wait. Too many times we're ready to go ahead and force God's hand. We're ready to go ahead and, and, and make God keep his promises. Abraham and Sarah is one of those great biblical examples of somebody that knew God's promise, that knew what God was promising, and knew what God was telling them. They were clear on what God expected from them, and yet they said, you know what, this isn't happening fast enough. We're getting old. The clock is ticking. Lord, we've got to speed this up. And so what they do? Instead of trusting God's plan, they introduced a surrogate named Hagar. And that child that was born from that union was named Ishmael. Ishmael, actually, is where Muslims today trace their lineage. And so track with me here. Abraham and Sarah forced God's hand. 
one thing led to another, and now you take your shoes off when you go through security at the airport. All because God's hand was forced. People tried to force God to move. During this 10-day waiting period, there was no ministry, no preaching, no attempts to reach those pilgrims that were filtering into Jerusalem. God said, wait, and so wait, they did. Had they gone out and tried to do ministry, the fact of the matter is quite simple. They probably would have fallen flat on their faces because they would have been doing ministry without the power of the Holy Spirit. Churches that try to do ministry today apart from the Spirit of God, they find themselves to be ineffective and poorly received because God's plan is always infinitely better than our plan. And so it's important for us that we listen to the Lord, that we do what He says rather than doing what we want, and then in turn hoping God will bless it. So what happens? The sound of the wind fills the room. The fire of the Holy Spirit descends on the assembly. And at some point, this group, they got to move outside, right? You can't keep it in. You can't keep it contained. It's got to move outside. And so at some point in time, they move outside, outside the upper room, and the miracle of Pentecost begins to spread beyond that initial assembly. And what we're told is that God gives the gift of, of languages. And again, people have parsed this and dissected this and tried to understand this. This is not the charismatic, ecstatic tongues that Paul deals with, deals with in Corinth. This is a particular miracle that happens at a particular time that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. I believe it's a one-time event that happened in this moment at the arrival of the Holy Spirit. God gives the gift of languages and this assembly. They begin to move outside and they begin to describe the mighty works of God to those within earshot. They began to retell what happened. This Jesus who, who was crucified has risen, and now he has sent us out with this good news that he is here to forgive sinners. But this group of 120, miraculously, they're able to do so in the language represented by those there at the feast. Now, I, I would suspect that if 120 people all pour out into the city street and began to declare the works of God in a literal cacophony of languages with 200,000 people from across the region all gathered there. It drew a crowd. But every crowd has its critics. This group was no different, which helps us to kind of see the third thing this morning I want us to consider don't ever doubt God's plan, but don't also ever doubt God's power. You see a couple of interesting expressions of doubt come forward here. The, the first expression of doubt is in the fact that, that someone says, aren't these all Galileans? Again, we read that and we think, well, what is that? Why, why does that matter? Aren't these all Galileans? I wouldn't know a Galilean if he came up and kicked me in the leg. I mean, I don't know what a Galilean looks like. You know, I've never met a Galilean, so I don't know. But what historians tell us is that, is that uh, these people who were suddenly masters of different and various languages, that what we find out about Galileans is that their hearers are amazed because they saw these Galileans as backward, as rednecks, as country bumpkins, as hillbillies, pick your pejorative. I mean, that's what Galileans were, were seen as. They were blue-collar fishermen. They were... They were, they were People of the people of the land. They were they were they were that, that kind of people. 
And so Galileans weren't, uh, weren't the most civilized or, or classy folks in the world. They'd never been to Cotillion, I guess we could say. So Galileans aren't, aren't couth. You know, they're, they're a bunch of good old boys. But one of the things about Galileans is interesting is that some of the sounds necessary to speak proper Hebrew and Aramaic are sounds that are made in the back of the throat. So if you've ever had a cold and you need to clear your throat, there's some Hebrew sounds that sound like that, okay? And they weren't able to pronounce those words well. And so if you ever ran across a Galilean, the way you tested was to ask them to use a word that had one of those guttural throaty sounds, and they weren't able to pronounce it. It was their accent. And so these, these Galileans were, were, were not masters of the language. I'll say that. A lot, of, a lot of grammar problems with these Galileans. And you see little hints about this in the Bible, like when Peter was waiting outside Jesus' trial, they were able to identify him as a Galilean. It's not because he had a uniform on. You know, it's not because he had a name badge on that said, Hi, I'm Peter, a Galilean, that all they had to do was talk to him. And if you've ever been up north and you're from down here, you know, they'll say, Hey, why don't you say something? You know, say caterpillar, you know, say watermelon. You know, they want to hear us talk because they know, Oh, you're from the south. You got an accent, right? And so Peter had this accent. And so the point is simply this if they couldn't speak Aramaic properly, how in the world could they suddenly become masters of all these other languages? Well, the simple answer, they couldn't. They couldn't. There was no Rosetta Stone. Google Translate was a few years away from being invented. It wasn't possible for these people to suddenly have the ability to, to speak. At least it wasn't humanly possible. The second expression of doubt's a classy one. Verse 13, well, they got to be drunk, Right? When all else fails, question their sobriety. These people are drunk. I understand. There's a lot of people in this world who think that they gain a particular set of skills under the influence that they wouldn't have gained otherwise. Some people think they're good singers. Critics may think I was drunk at the beginning of the service because I sang a solo on the internet feed. I assure you I have not gained any skills this morning. However, I'd say, that the, I'd say that the experience across human history is this. Drunkenness doesn't enhance any of our intellectual abilities. It doesn't make us smarter. It doesn't make us act better. It universally makes us dumber and causes us to act foolish. Which it leads me to believe that the mockers in the crowd were probably the ones who were drunk rather than the disciples who were speaking in all these languages. The bottom line is this. Don't ever put limitations on God's power. Don't ever put limitations on God's power. We want to make excuses for God. I said last week, I, I want to see God do again in our generation some of the mighty works that he did in, in this generation. I want to pray the simple prayer, do it again, Lord. But I find in my flesh, I want to pray it with a caveat. Lord, do it again, but we understand if you, if you don't. Lord, do it again, but, but if you choose not to, that's okay. We want to give God an out and say, Lord, I, we don't, we're okay if you don't. 
What if we just prayed, Lord, do it again with expectancy that God would move and work and transform our communities and transform our church? What if we prayed that with the expectancy that God's going to answer it? At least the belief that he can. I firmly believe that God can do it again. His character, his power, his goals, none of them have changed since this day that the Holy Spirit fell. I think what has changed, I think what has changed is, is us. Our hearts are so easily inclined towards other things. The same Holy Spirit that made himself manifest through the sound of rushing wind and the appearance of fire, he lives inside of us as his followers. I heard an illustration from the preacher at camp this week that is appropriate. He was talking about the, you know, the old bench seat pickup trucks that when you were a, when you were a younger person and your, 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 your boyfriend was riding around driving one of these bench seat pickup trucks, where'd you ride in the truck, ladies, if, if your boyfriend had one of those pickup trucks? You rode where, in the middle, right? Where, where he, could, he could drive us this way. I'm not in Britain. Uh, you know, <laughs> you could drive with a hand on the wheel and, a, and an arm around your girl, right? And so the story was told of a, of a couple that, you know, they dated in high school, and he had one of those old pickup trucks that he loved, and, and she rode right there in the middle, one hand on the wheel, one hand on her shoulder. And over the course of time, as they got married and had kids and all this life kind of comes along, he found himself still with his old pickup truck. But now when he was driving, his wife was no longer riding in the, in the middle. Instead, she was riding over in the passenger seat. And one day they were riding down the countryside and, and, you know, they were, a song came on the radio. It was one of the old songs that they used to listen to. And, and they began to reminisce. And, and she said, you know, she said, that reminds me of when we were young and, and I used to ride right there in the middle of the seat. And he looked at her and he said, well, you know what? I haven't moved. God hadn't moved. He's where he's been. And so if we don't see God working like God worked there, might it be that we've moved? What's changed is us. He lives inside of us. Right? I mean, we believe that, right? The indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, when you're in Christ, lives in us. Say that. Right now, say it out loud. He lives in me. Say it. He lives in me. He lives in me. What's changed? Don't ever doubt God's power. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 5, verse 15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But instead, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I think Paul wrote that with this day in mind. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Fourthly, don't ever doubt God's heart. Look at all who was present there on the day of Pentecost. Again, I, I don't know any of these folks. I mean, I, I, wouldn't know a, I wouldn't know an Elamite if he came after the Galilean and kicked me in the leg. I wouldn't know who these people are. But there's this incredible gathering of people there in Jerusalem from all over the Mediterranean. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, Babylon's there, Judea, Asia, Phrygia. I mean, it, look at a map of the Mediterranean and Jews from all over have come, up, come to this gathering there. And all of these native tongues being, were, were being spoken there. I mean, I recently heard a report that said New York City is the most linguistically diverse city in the world. There's not a lot of consensus, but the average number reported suggests that more than 600 languages are spoken in New York City. Imagine what that would be like. I remember going to New York City as a kid, but kids think about things differently than adults. I can't imagine being in a place like that. Obviously, there weren't 600 languages there on Pentecost, but it does give us a point of comparison. Each and every single one of those languages represented a group of people that desperately mattered to a holy God. And it gives us a clear picture of where God's heart truly is. God has the heart of a missionary. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God wants everyone everywhere saved. Do we believe that? God wants everyone everywhere saved. Now that doesn't mean, I'm not a universalist, that doesn't mean that everyone everywhere will be saved. The Bible clearly speaks of the wide road that leads to destruction and the narrow gate that leads to salvation. There's going to be a whole lot more people who reject the Lord than who receive the Lord. But that doesn't change the heart of God that wants everyone everywhere saved. God wants all to repent and that none should perish. God's heart is clear. And this heart that God has has direct consequences for us. God loves your neighbor and your coworker. God loves your supervisor and your doctor. God loves your teacher. God loves your student. God loves your mother and your father. God loves your wayward son and your wayward daughter. And God wants them saved through the power of the gospel and filled with the Holy Spirit. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, you need to understand that God's desire for you today is that you would give your life to Jesus and that you would be transformed today and that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is what God wants for you today. And it could be that God is raising you up to be the means by which the, that person in your life hears the gospel and is saved. There was absolutely nothing special about the 120 folks in that upper room. 
We know what their professions were. We know what their careers were. They looked just like us. It was a random collection of people from all walks of life meeting together because they were eager to see Jesus move in their lives. And so God showed up with the gift of the Holy Spirit and he sent those average, everyday, ordinary people out to reach the nations. And it turns out that the nations were waiting right outside in the street. And the only thing that's changed in the last 2,000 years is that we now know that our world is much bigger than we did back then. And at the same time the world is larger, it's also so much smaller. Over on the east side of Atlanta, just under the shadow of Stone Mountain, you'll find a little town called Clarkston. If you've never heard of Clarkston, it's worth some Googling and looking into it. Over the last 30 years, this little quiet Atlanta suburb, I know that's an oxymoron, quiet and Atlanta in the same sentence, but this little suburb of Atlanta has become home to thousands and thousands of refugees representing more than 40 countries speaking at least 60 different languages. They say that Clarkston is the most diverse square mile in the United States, right here in the state of Georgia. Think about that. Refugees from all over the world that 50 years ago, a hundred years ago, you wouldn't have been able to go there. You may not have even known that they existed. But today they live in the shadow of Atlanta in our own capital city. You know, COVID has taken quite a toll on our missions and evangelism efforts as a church. Not just the church, but it's taken its toll on our church. And we are beginning the work of revitalizing these efforts Coming up on July 17th and 18th, we've got an opportunity for you to connect with our very own community as we work to turn the church inside out. This, this statement has really grasped me. grasped me. I don't know who said it, but it has really, really galvanized in my heart. The Great Commission tells us to go and make, not sit and wait. The Great Commission tells us to go and make, not sit and wait. If we've not learned anything as our church, we should have learned by now that the sit and wait method of evangelism is really fruitless. It's not very effective. Because generally speaking, lost folks aren't interested in coming to our church services. I don't care anything about going to, uh, you know, to, to watch a, um, a water polo tournament. I'm not interested in it. You can invite me to a water polo tournament, and I'm not going to go. I'm going to look for anything else in the world to do other than go to that. Because that just doesn't interest me. You invite lost folks to come to church, they're not really eager to be a part of, of church. And so if we want to reach lost folks, we need to go where lost folks are, which is in our community. And so the Great Commission tells us to go and make disciples, not sit and wait for them to show up. We need to remember that going to make disciples isn't just limited to some far-off mission field. There are certainly ample opportunities to do that. But we as the church need to remember that the mission field begins where our parking lots end. And it involves our very own neighbors, our co-workers, people we do business with, people we encounter in the street. Finally, don't ever get, doubt God's word. <laughs> you get into the second part of Acts chapter 2. Listen to verse 14. 
Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's early in the morning. (laughs) It's too early to be drunk. He says, But this is what was offered through the prophet Joel. After a time, we don't know how long this went on, this miraculous expression of various languages, Peter stands to address the crowd. I love this scene. Oh, my goodness. This scene is incredible. It's like Steve Rogers coming out of the tank after the super serum injection. Here is, here is Peter, who was a coward. He was an impulsive fisherman. You couldn't count on him to do anything, right? He, but now he's a spirit-filled preacher, and nobody's going to silence him. What in the world happened to this man? What, what serum did he take? And the serum was this. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he is a preacher of preachers, and he lays down the very first Christian sermon. Fifty days ago, he didn't have the courage to stand with Jesus. Swore that he didn't know him. There's a little fellow who used to, a little, little guy, a little short guy, used to be a preacher. He's gone on to be with the Lord. And uh, he was faithful to be in church every, every Sunday until as long as, as long as he could. And he'd always come up to me after the service, and if it was a sermon that he'd particularly enjoyed, he'd look at me and he'd say, well, Brother Brian, you really shucked the corn today. And I always read this, and I think about, uh, think about Brother Nelson. Man, Peter really shucked the corn here. Man, he shucks the corn. Isaiah 55, verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Listen, church, this morning. Don't ever doubt the power, the veracity of God's word. And understand this. God is the one who's in charge of the outcomes. God's in charge of the outcomes. He simply gives us the command to be his witnesses. Enlightened by his word, empowered by his spirit, to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so if we'll do that, filled with the Holy Spirit, informed by the Word of God, if we will be His witnesses, and we will communicate the Word of God to all who have ears to hear, we trust God for the outcomes. We do our part, and we get to see God do His. Don't ever doubt the power of God's Word. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, God, what a miracle. May we not lose sight of what you did in that moment when the church was born, 
and it was set afire by the Holy Spirit. What a powerful story. But God, if we do anything today, let us not let that remain a story, but let us remember that the Holy Spirit of God lives in me. Church, say that in your heart. He lives in me. And so if we have doubts, may those doubts be canceled by the Spirit's work in our life. If we wonder if God's still at work, let's put it to the test. Let's see what happens. Let's, let's be about our Father's business. Let's share the gospel with anything that's got ears. Let's see what happens. That same power that was at work in them is at work in us. And so may you guide us to overcome our complacency. May you help us to realize that you haven't moved. And may we be faithful in going about our Father's business. The second we leave this parking lot, God, if there's any here today in this room, in this place, maybe watching from home, they need to give their life to Christ. They've heard today that God's greatest desire for them is for them to know him. And he has paved the way for them through the gospel, through Jesus' shed blood and his resurrection. Would you today give them the courage to turn from sin and to turn to Jesus? And in this moment, would they just come down front, take my hand, take Pastor Spencer's hand, and say, tell me what it means to follow Jesus. God, I thank you for that room on Thursday night when I got to see so many children, young men, young women, stand and say they want to follow Christ. Maybe there's some here today that need to make that same decision. Move in their hearts, God. Draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.